Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. It's said that uh, the Buddha was motivated to, uh, to teach um, after he was enlightened. Uh, at first he was a bit reluctant uh, because he said, this, the Dharma that I've seen is, so, is very profound and deep and it would be a vexation to me if I tried to uh, teach it and people uh, did not understand it. That was his first reaction. But then he was encouraged to take a look and see um, the possibilities of, of others understanding what he understood. And he said that he saw that there were many with but a little bit of dust covering their eyes. And if they could understand or hear the teachings, that they too would uh, awaken and be free. And in that looking out over the, the world, he also was said to notice that everyone wants to be free of suffering, but most people are doing exactly the, the things that lead to more suffering. Isn't that interesting? Everybody wants to be free of suffering, but doing just the things that lead to more suffering. And when he saw that, he said, oh, this dharma can, can help so many. And he then went out and taught for the next 45 years of his life. <clears throat> and as probably most of you know, um, the Four Noble Truths, the, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is attachment. Attachment is the cause of suffering. However, um, in, uh, in working with people and looking at uh, my own mind and heart, I've often seen this little paradox that um, doesn't often get um, addressed, which is that sometimes we can become attached to our suffering. And tonight I wanted to explore the payoff in suffering, why we might have a hard time letting go as much as we want to be free of suffering, and maybe to see the bigger payoffs that are potentially gifts of our suffering. It's said that um, if we can... Now, 
uh, I know, what I want to say, uh, Ajahn Chah, the uh, wonderful Thai master who was uh, Jack Cornfield's teacher, and Ajahn Sumedho's, Ajahn Amaro's, and uh, uh, I had the the um, good fortune to be around him uh, a bit while he was uh, teaching. He said, there's suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So how you work with the suffering in your life, the dukkha in your life, if you uh, aren't familiar with that word dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which is often translated as suffering, sometimes unsatisfactoriness or unreliability or stress, uh, I, I love that the sound of that word because it really conveys, you know, I'm having a lot of dukkha today, right? Um, so how you how you relate to the fact that first noble truth, <clears throat> there is suffering in life. How you relate to it might determine, to a large degree, will determine whether that suffering leads to more suffering or can possibly be used to move you in the direction of the end of suffering. Why do we become attached to suffering? There are seductive, hidden gems in our dukkha. And uh, before I share some thoughts, and uh, hopefully we'll have time for, uh, for a discussion, I just uh, would invite you to go uh, inside so this becomes uh, your own uh, personal reflection. And think of the various ways that uh, sometimes you suffer. It might be something physical, a physical condition. But if you can, particularly look at your mental or heart in relationship to suffering and see if you can sense any payoffs that you get from your suffering, any ways that it's seductive and um, hard to give up, hard to let go of. Why? Why for you? And as you do this, no judgment, you're just exploring the human experience And so maybe we'll come back later and uh, just see what's out here in the uh, the group. Mm. But until you are seeing how maybe you um, can sometimes be hooked by your suffering, then you are uh, doomed to keep on wishing it were gone, but perpetuating it, just like the Buddha said. 
Um, I'm thinking of a line by Joseph Goldstein, uh, uh, one of my main teachers, who said, um, says, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. The not seeing of dukkha, which includes the not seeing of how you get kind of hooked and seduced by your dukkha. Uh, That is even greater dukkha because there you are just caught in, uh, in an unconscious perpetuation that might not be necessary. So I'll share with you um, a few of the, the payoffs that, uh, that I kind of come up with in reflecting on this, and maybe you'll have some more. One is, um, it's familiar. It's home. It's... Uh, it's just comfortable. And it can be a, a little bit of a, of a stretch to um, let go of our suffering because who are we without it? Sometimes it becomes you know, our cross to bear. This happened to me and so this is, um, this is who I am. And we can hold ourselves with a particular image and, and just become so, uh, it can be so, become so concretized or so, so much a part of who we are that we don't know who we are without it. Sometimes when people come on retreat and they, um, they come into an interview uh, a little bit unsettled um, and they, they come in and they say, uh, I don't know what's going on with me, but I'm, I'm kind of. Uh, this is unfamiliar territory. It's, it's a bit light. It's a bit, uh, you know, buzzy, and uh, it's kind of more energy that I'm used to, and uh, I don't know quite what it is. And this has happened a number of times as we look at more and more. What are you feeling? What are you feeling? And then sometimes the response is, oh, I think I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, you know. And I don't know if I can handle it so much, especially if it's, my God, it's joy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Can anyone relate to that? Because, and for all kinds of reasons, you know, I I said I teach this Awakening Joy course. A lot of times uh, people come and say, oh yeah, well let me see, because I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, it can be a kind of foreign thing to, to let go of the the familiarity, the, the burden of our life. The image that I, I have uh, that I came up with a number of years ago, you know, um, you ever get a sore in your mouth and it's kind of annoying, but 
after a while, you kind of like playing with it. You know? you know, just playing with that sore. Map, there it is. Yeah, yeah. And you find yourself like playing with your sore for a few days, and then it might start to leave, and it's like, oh, where did that go? You know, it's a bit like that. We just kind of play with our dukkha, yeah, because it's home, it's comfortable. Hmm. Just uh, recalling another story that I. I hadn't thought of uh, for for a while. I was uh, studying art with, um, or studying the creative process with this wonderful teacher, uh, a woman named Michelle Casu, who developed this this uh, creative process of just putting. You don't have to be an artist. You just put yourself out on the paper, and you keep on going to the areas of the paper if the, that, that you pick another color if you feel stuck or you go to a blank area if you feel stuck. It's really brilliant. She and her former partner, Stuart Kubli, uh, um, teach this creative process. Anyway, she was showing a series of her own paintings at one point. Um, haven't thought of this in a while. And it was a series of, this is what was coming through her and she just, shared it with some people who wanted to see what her own creative process was. And it was uh, all about death um, and her own death and uh, various uh, stages that she was going through in, in working with death. And there was this one picture that is indelible in my mind where she, in her mind, had died and she was in the coffin underground and in the coffin, uh, her body was kind of, it was dank and kind of starting to decay. And there were maggots and worms and things all around. And it wasn't very, you know, it was kind of yucky there. And in her, in her picture, there was a, um, a tunnel uh, that, or a kind of a tube that went from the coffin through the ground, up into the heavens where there were Buddha faces. It was like Buddha fields up in the sky. And as she was sharing her own experience, she said, you know, there I was down in the coffin, but I was kind of comfortable there. And all I had to do was just decide to leave and I could be up in the Buddha fields. But it was so much effort to get up. And I was just hanging out there in my dank, maggot-filled coffin, you know. And I could, there was a part of me that could relate. Yeah, it's just, you know, kind of, woe is me and it's home. So that's one thing. It's familiar. As we, uh, I, I won't call for uh, um, uh, individual responses, but uh, if you can relate to that at times in your own life, this doesn't have to define you, but if you can relate to that in your experience, just I'm curious how many people can relate. Oh, okay, great. See, it's nice to know you're not alone. And in fact, 
it can be uh, so familiar that we can get caught in uh, addictive behavior. That's the next kind of um, payoff that the suffering is great, but on the short term, it's going to feel good. And so it's so interesting how we're wired up that we can see the short-term payoff very easily, but the longer-term consequence for whatever our behavior it is, whether it, we're talking about food or substances or work or whatever, email or that's, you know, that's a big one, although it's, it's um, you know, you can still function with it, but there's some, sometimes barely function with addiction to email. But uh, it's so painful to see people who get caught in the short-term payoff and don't see where this is leading to. How interesting that we're not so wired up to see what it's going to look like down the road. And sometimes I think of the, the spiritual journey as learning more and more the power of delayed gratification. Yeah, this feels good now, but what's it going to feel like a week from now or tomorrow or six months from now? And how we then keep on getting caught in that short-term pellet, uh, if it's something with a physical addiction, that's incredibly hard to break. Uh, But even that some behavioral addictions that we know aren't good for us, that's the thing that kind of, it's so um, mysterious. I I did a series of talks uh, a year or two uh, ago on uh, this book, The Power of Habit, how powerful it is when we develop habits that we know aren't good for us and yet we still get trapped. And after a while, the brain, the rational uh, understanding part of the brain gets bypassed and automatically you go on, uh, you go on automatic pilot and get caught in that behavior. So this short-term gratification, it feels good now when there's guilt or shame or discouragement later. How many people could relate to that one? Yeah, I didn't think I was alone. And it's so interesting. There we are at this mysterious moment where we can see one way or the other, but, oh, what the heck. And there we go. So that's another one. Third, why we can sometimes get attached to our dukkha. It's not boring. Our dukkha can be very juicy. You know, it can 
it can be very mm, deep and dramatic. You know, we like dramas. You know, that's why people pay good money for a drama. There's very few movies that start out and they lived happily ever after. Right? We, we want to go through the tension and the, uh, uh, the, the, the conflict and then somehow get to a resolution. But uh, for the most part, um, we like things to be juicy, almost anything but boredom. And often, people who are so familiar with their dramas, and I'm not, I'm, that's, I'd say, most of us in there, um, the thought of not having a drama seems uh, kind of bland. You know? What if there's nothing to worry about? As I've mentioned about my, my mom, I come from a lineage of warriors. My mother used to say, if I can't think of something to worry about, that's when I really get worried. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it gives the mind something to do. Or we like to complain. That's another way that we perpetuate our suffering. You know, uh, there's the, the old, uh, there's the joke of the, these seniors who uh, just uh, were into the complaining mode. Uh, by the way, if you haven't seen, you can, my, you can see my mom, who was a great complainer kvetch on YouTube. If you just go to uh, Confessions of a Jewish Mother, how, how My Son Ruined My Life, um, which is now up to 328,000 views. Um, she's very funny, but she liked to complain in it. And there's this old joke, you know, oh, one day, oh, lunch was so, so awful today, you know, oh, and the person complains, complains. And then the next day, oh, lunch was so awful yesterday. <laughs> oh, two days ago, that lunch was so awful, you know. We just kind of hang on to it because it's not boring. You got something to kvetch about. That's the Yiddish word. Um, And the interesting thing is that um, what might seem like boredom, a lack of something to complain about, or a lack of drama is really just the flip side of peace and contentment. When you don't have something to complain about, when things are actually okay, you can miss, oh, this is a moment of okayness. Nothing to kvetch about. Huh. Oh. Maybe it's okay. And I, I remember being around uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, a very iconoclastic, um, crazy wisdom teacher. One, one day he, um, he was uh, giving a, a talk, and he, um, 
he came in as he often did. Uh, this is in Naropa in, uh, in the 70s, Naropa, then Naropa Institute, now Naropa University. And he came in very late, as he usually did, uh, and he sat down and he said, tonight I will talk about the real breakthrough in practice. Everybody got really excited. He's finally going to give the secret teachings. <laughs> the real breakthrough in practice. And he then proceeded to ramble on for the next, must have been an hour and a half, just maybe two hours, talking about the most inconsequential, mundane, boring things. And in mid-sentence, as people are kind of like getting really restless, he leans into the microphone and he says, the real breakthrough is boredom. (laughs) It was brilliant. It was a brilliant talk. The real breakthrough is boredom. If you're looking for entertainment to make your life a little bit more exciting, you're going to miss out on the present moment. And anything that's less than entertaining is going to be not worthy of your attention. Don't miss this moment, especially when it doesn't have a peak experience in it, because right in this moment is the peace you're looking for. Right in this moment is the contentment that you're looking for. So, we hang on to our suffering and our dukkha because it's rich and juicy and not boring. Anybody can relate to that? Another mm, gift or seduction in attachment to our dukkha, to our suffering. It can be um, an excuse for not thriving. An excuse for uh, not being all that you can be, as the what the armed forces uh, commercial says, be all you can be. You know, it's actually a really good instruction to be all you can be. Um, there might be other ways besides the armed forces, but um, um, and I have great respect for people who who do join the armed forces out of a love for their country, so I don't want to make light of that. But if we really go for it, then um, what happens if we don't make it? And so our suffering can be a way that we hold ourselves back. You know, I, I remember actually uh, when I was in high school and I went to a pretty... Uh, a pretty um, well-respected school in, in New York City, and I did pretty good. I had, uh, my average was uh, uh, 
0.4 graduating the high school in high school. But that, what was really cool about it was I got that average and I didn't even try. That was what I said to myself. Because I, when I took a look, if I really did try and I didn't get a 92 average, you know, then what would it be? So I could see I really held myself back uh, because there was a fear in there of not just really shining to the full extent. And we can often do this. This is um, uh, one of the, uh, the great causes of procrastination uh, that if we, if we shine, if we really do our best and shine, then um, how are people going to feel about me? You know, maybe they'll be jealous of me. Maybe they won't accept me. Maybe I'll feel guilty. Maybe I won't succeed. So we can easily get into, oh, because this happened to me, I can't, and you can fill in the blank. It's playing it safe. There's a, uh, I, rem- I remember seeing this uh, motivational speaker, Terry Cole Whitaker. <clears throat> I don't know if she's still around. This is many years ago. She said, uh, she's a great speaker. And she said, uh, most people are content to have C averages in life. They just want to be normal. Right? And there they are looking at the people really going for it that get A plus in the, the fulfilling of their potential. And they're saying, wow, look at them. Gee, look at them. And they feel nice and comfortable just being in the mid-range. Now, of course, we can't all be superstars. And it can be a very deadly thing to compare ourselves with others and am I as good as... But when it's to develop your own potential to the fullest, not comparing against anybody, but just doing it because these are the gifts you've been given and it feels so rich and fulfilling when you do put your whole heart into something, um, we can often deprive ourselves of that. And our suffering can be an excuse. Not always, sometimes it's legitimate. But if we tend to say, to have an excuse, um, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. Anybody can relate to that. And along with that... is that feeling of um, it's scary to letting ourselves come to our fullness, like I said before, uh, to be successful or to, uh, to shine. As that Marianne Williamson quote says, our deepest fear um, is that uh, we will come into our fullness. That's more scary than uh, than playing small. <clears throat> mm. 
And finally, the, the one that I thought of is, um, it's a bit like the, the drama one, but uh, sometimes we can have this idea, particularly around happiness, that it's kind of shallow to be happy and at ease or content. You know, I remember having an existential crisis in college. I, I write this in, in Awakening Joy, where I was reading a lot of Camus and Sartre, and uh, and and every every conversation was kind of how uh, there was no point to life, uh, and it was painful. But I felt very deep, you know. And it seemed kind of shallow to, you know, be happy. Mm. Kind of wearing my neurosis like a badge, you know. I'm more screwed up than you are. Um, And sometimes it can take a a bit of um, a, a shift in perspective to see, oh, at being at ease and being, uh, being at peace within yourself and feeling appreciative and content with life is really an okay thing. You don't have to feel guilty about it. Sometimes people feel guilty about it because there's so much suffering in the world. So this is not to say that you should always be happy. Uh, that would be living in denial. And sometimes in our world, especially with happiness uh, uh, teachings, you know, there can be this pressure to feel happy. That's a drag. You know, some people do the Awakening Joy course and they say, I'm trying really hard to be joyful and it's just <laughs> not working. Don't try hard to be joyful. It's not going to work. Not to put pressure on yourself to be happy, but people who find real inner peace are not happy all the time. They feel everything. They feel their grief and their fears and their losses fully, but they're not overwhelmed by them. They feel their joys and their goodness and their blessings fully, and they don't miss them. So this is not to put pressure on yourself to you know, forget your troubles, come on, get happy, like the old song says. But if your dukkha, if dukkha is your default, and it's just a habit, and you're in a rut, that's what I'm talking about. That you don't have to be in that rut. Because as, many, as good as those payoffs, as limiting, and, but good as those payoffs might unconsciously seem, there's bigger payoffs in suffering. There's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Those first ones are the suffering that just leads to more suffering. Suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And we've looked at this and talked about it in various times here, but I'll just mention a few. Suffering humbles us, doesn't it? We can think, hey, I've been practicing for 20 years or 10 years, you know, or five years, you know, or 40 years. 
I should have this figured out by now. And then we're back to square one. Back to beginner's mind, as Suzuki Roshi says. And we get humbled. As soon as there's that hubris that says, I think I got this stuff figured out, the universe will bop you over the head and say, oh yeah? And in my mind, it's good every now and then to be humbled. Not as a steady diet, but every now and then to see, I don't know, I don't understand. I need to let go of thinking I've got this figured out. Because... um, it's an antidote to hubris. And it brings us to a state of um, innocence again. And particularly to vulnerability. And that is one of the keys to having our hearts open. We might know all the answers, but if we think we know all the answers and there's some kind of pride, we have an, uh, an armoring around us. And vulnerability, as I have quoted my son Adam, uh, he came back on, on one retreat. Uh, uh, he was sitting for a month, and I said, well, what's, what was your retreat about? And he said, it was about fearlessness. And I said, oh yeah, what did you learn about fearlessness? He said, I'm starting to get that the path to fearlessness is vulnerability. Because the, that openness of heart, letting our heart be touched, is uh, a doorway to also letting our love be, uh, be expressed and letting our, um, our caring and our compassion uh, be uh, shine through. I want to read to you actually another quote. I love this from... Trungpa Rinpoche. If you search for awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you may feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. This this experience of sadness, rather, is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and so personal. For the warrior, this experience of sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Conventionally, being fearless means that you're not afraid of or, or that some, if someone hits you, you'll hit him back. However, we're not talking about that street fighter level of fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness if you're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world, this is the kind of warrior sadness of a tender heart.
So suffering can do that to us. It tenderizes us. It brings us into humility and vulnerability. It also gives us courage that we're learning instead of running away or hiding or feeling, finding an excuse, we're finding somehow an inner strength that turns towards the dukkha, that's willing to learn and grow. This is uh, Jennifer Wellwood. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. It's called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. So we gain courage. Courage, the word courage, kur, is from the heart. We find a heartfelt inner strength if we're willing a little by little to face our sorrows and our suffering. We find, of course, compassion. This is how suffering turns into compassion, not by getting rid of it, but by holding it with, with a kind heart. <clears throat> compassion is what connects us with everyone. Last week, I think it was, we, or the week before, we talked about that self-compassion practice. You can do it again. Just put your hand on your heart for a moment. When you're going through a hard time, this is a moment of suffering. This is hard. Suffering is a part of life. And you can connect with everybody who's going through what you're going through. Suffering is a part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. Right there, that's the real payoff in suffering. We can bring that tender heart right to ourselves and we are the, the wise, compassionate one that can comfort ourselves. And so, of course, the real gift in suffering is the compassionate heart and the wise heart that sees, oh, this is part of life. This is impermanent. This is not going to last, but this is my curriculum for right now. And beyond the stories, beyond the mental fabrications, there is a place of connection right now with myself and with all of life. So, are you willing to let go of the lesser payoff 
for the bigger payoff. It takes patience. It takes kindness. It takes understanding. But here it is in our suffering as the wonderful teaching of the Buddha says, the transcendental dependent arising, suffering can be a causative factor for deep faith and gladness and joy if we know how to use it skillfully. To not be afraid of it, to not feel we're going to be here forever, and to little by little open up and get all the support we can in the process, go for the bigger payoff. So, we can uh, take some time uh, if there's any questions or comments uh, about the theme. And Andrew is going to take out around the mic. And say your name. I know your name, My but name why don't you say Linda. it anyway? Hi, Linda. And you just hold it on an angle. That's it. Yeah. So, um, my my job, um, I was a programmer in library automation, and so it involved solving problems. Mm. So mm. there was almost always a technical problem challenging me, and then there were often um, problems with people. Um, and after I retired, those problems weren't there. And I often had really um, pretty nice days. I mean, you know, a little gardening, a little food shopping, a little cooking, Mm -hmm. you know, dinner with my husband. But at certain times, maybe when when things were especially um, easy, I would find my mind looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it was so interesting. It was almost, well, it was a physical sensation of yeah. where's, where's the knot? Um, yeah. So anyway, what you said about like needing a little bit of drama just really um, struck home with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something it, my mind does. Yeah, it's great that you can track that, you know. And I would, I could, I would suggest that you take a look when you uh, when you're finding yourself just getting a little bit antsy, uh, if you are manufacturing a little bit of drama just to make your your life uh, a little bit less boring, and uh, instead you might just see. Oh, there's this moment that I'm alive. Hmm, as Ramdas says, true contentment is about plumbing the depths of this moment. Let's just be here for this moment instead of looking for what out there can I fix? So it's great that you can track it. Thank you. Yes, and say your name. I know your name, but say it. Yeah. My name is Sinyan. And I, what Linda said was uh, one of the things I wanted to share is um, at, like out of the blue one day I thought I'm not happy with my job. I wanted to go 
find another job. And so I was talking to my friend, and so she asked me, so what's, what is your skill? And then the first thing that popped into my mind was like, I'm a problem solver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so I was like, literally looking for things that, jobs that, that are fit, that will fit that skill. Mm-hmm. And then so, but then all of a sudden, one night, then I was sitting, I was like, wait a minute. If I'm a problem solver, that means there have to be problems to exist in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and then I, that just gave me a pause in terms of my search of mm. what I want to do. Mm. Um, so a teaching or my job right now is not the problem. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, that give, gave me a new look in terms of what, I'm, what I need to be searching. And mm. so that, will, that actually... Um, ease my mind in terms of like what I'm doing right now. Mm. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So the second thing I wanted to share is actually my grandmother's teaching about in Chinese um, uh, culture or in her world that she talked taught to me about bitter and sweet. So bitter is suffering and sweet is um, um, happiness and enjoyment. And so she always says, you have to know bitterness in order to understand or appreciate sweetness. And that's what we always have. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Two things uh, to comment. One is that um, I'm not suggesting that uh, you stop being problem solvers. And for all the really good problem solvers here, thank goodness you're around it's just if, and, and when there's a problem, and it can be a challenge, and you can say, okay, let's see how this can, can be addressed. That's very different than, oh, woe is me, or looking for the next thing to complain about. So I am so appreciative uh, for all the, I know some very good problem solvers in, in, in my life, and it's very good that they are around, uh, around me. But you don't have to go looking for what's wrong. Uh, it will find you soon enough. Um, and then the other thing, as you were saying uh, about the bitter and the sweet, this is from Khalil Gibran, the prophet. I, I didn't know if I'd, if I'd share it. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. And this is, the human realm is the optimal realm to wake up because it has the, the, the balance between suffering and joy. If it's all suffering, it's a hell realm. If it's all joy and bliss out, you don't wake up. You don't have enough grit against you. So this is the perfect combination where we can deal with both sorrows and joys. Okay. One last one, and then I guess we should get going. Yeah. And your name? Hi, I'm Susanna. Hi, Susanna. Um, so I'm wondering where this might fit in on your list. Um, when you asked the question initially, the thought that came to my mind was the way that I use suffering to um, 
feel in control in my life. Mm. Say more. Say a little bit more. I've been thinking a lot recently about um, why it is that I have been underslept for 25, 30 years <laughs> or something, um, and why I can't seem to um, figure that out for myself. And um, so the first, when you asked about suffering, I thought, oh, I'm tired. Um, and then I've been thinking a lot about it recently, and I thought, oh, well, I feel like if I do more, I'll, I'll get in control of my life. And some of it is about um, having time to myself, I think, but some of it is about needing, and I think the emailing thing is sometimes about that too. If I can just stay on this a little bit longer, I will really manage to get under control. I'll get things in control, and then I'll really feel like I have it, and I can like put my pin in it, and it'll be fixed or something. Um, so there's something about holding on to these things that cause me suffering out of some kind of fear of, of things feeling out of control. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You're not alone in this. And it's, it's again, very much um, a, a, a universal conundrum that we do things that sabotage our well-being uh, because that's the familiar one, because... It, we, it, it's our own way of having some very limited uh, control. And the more you see it, it's, it's a bit humbling to see it, to wake up to it, uh, but have great compassion for that and just see it's really getting clear, do I want to go for a deeper kind of um, connection and happiness because that limited control is dukkha. And so how do we want to spend our life, our next 30, 40, 50 years? The choice is ours. And really, when you think about it, you really want to be happy. As much as you might say, I don't know about this happiness stuff. Everything you do in your life, you do because you think Consciously or unconsciously, it'll make you feel better or maybe a little less bad. There's something in you that really wants to be happy and to go for it and see where real happiness lies. And that means first taking a look or being willing to take a look at all the things that get in the way and hold them with great tenderness because it's all habit. So good luck. Thank you. Okay, so let's... uh, close with a very short loving kindness because it's time and just feeling your own heart and having a tenderness for all the habits that have been practiced that might not serve you but that you do because there's some part of you that thinks they will And get in touch with that wholesome wish to open to all the goodness inside and the happiness available to you. 
and wish that for yourself. May I be happy or content. May I be at ease. May I know real inner peace. And then sending those thoughts out to everyone here and all beings in all directions. May all see through their suffering to a deep understanding and compassion. May all feel the goodness and the love inside and share their love well. And may all know, as the Buddha said, the highest happiness. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much for your attention. Have a good week. Have a good month. I'll see you next month. And uh, share your goodness and love. And stack up the chairs very neatly. To, uh, <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.